Hello, everyone. Today we've got Brian Wimmer. Brian, you're currently a portfolio manager in the fixed income group at Vanguard, where you've worked your entire professional career. Unbelievable. You have an MBA from Lehigh and also hold the highly respected CFA designation. We're so fortunate to be able to speak with you. And, Brian, thank you so much. Sure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So what is there something I missed, something I left out? Uh, is there anything else you want to do regarding introducing yourself? I, I think you hit the work stuff. I'm sure we'll get into some more of the details about day-to-day and things that I spend time on. Um, but I guess just to, to let people know outside of work, um, I have a wife and uh, three young boys, so they keep me very busy. Um, I'm in my, my mid-30s now. I can't believe I'm saying that. So, uh, you know, more than a decade away from graduation. So um, I don't quite feel like an adult yet, but uh, but I guess I am officially. <laughs> well, I'm sure... Uh, the family keeps you young as well. Yes, definitely. <laughs> so we mentioned that uh, you're a portfolio manager in the fixed income group. Portfolio management is one of those careers that is a highly desired um, intra-finance field. And what I was wondering is if you could tell us what you do professionally, what a typical day-to-day looks like. Sure. So I, I think the, f- the first thing to mention is um, you mentioned a lot of careers that are either highly sought after um, or, or careers that, that a lot of uh, students hear about in college or people outside of different industries hear about, um, portfolio manager being one of them, um, equity research analyst I think is another one that people tend to, to hear, hear about um, and consider as far as a career path. Um, the first thing to say is that with, with all of those roles, there can be very significant differences or nuances um, as you start to get into different aspects of research or different aspects of portfolio management, whether that's um, the buy side or the sell side, whether that is um, working for a large firm or a small firm, whether that's working with one asset class versus another, um, whether that's active management or indexing. So there's a lot of different dimensions or, or different characteristics of the portfolio management role that could be different depending on where you're at. And if you if you look out on LinkedIn, right, if you search portfolio manager, you, you have no idea what you're looking at in most cases. Um, sometimes that person is a, you know, 20-year veteran of a hedge fund managing a large pool of money very tactically, and sometimes you might get uh, a financial advisor that's two years out of school and is, is using model portfolios to, to build asset allocations for clients. Um, so, so for me specifically, kind of walking through some of the details, so Vanguard as a buy-side firm, so we are managing mutual funds and ETFs on behalf of our investors, and those investors can be retail clients, you know, people people nearing retirement or in retirement, people saving for college, saving for for their education and for their children, um, all the way up to some of the, the world's largest institutions, whether that be endowments, foundations, or uh, sovereign wealth funds, governments, things like that. Um, so the, for for my role, the client themselves doesn't matter quite as much as the mandate of the fund that they're investing in. So. You mentioned I work in the fixed income department, so fixed income is obviously bonds. Um, and in, in our department, um, we separate the group into both active and passive or index management. On the active side, 
people are investing in the, the, the portfolio managers are managing mutual funds that have a wider or broader mandate. And what they can do is take larger bets or larger views on the market that deviate from the mandate or the benchmark of the fund. And they're trying to obviously add value relative to the benchmark. They're trying to outperform. If the benchmark or the, the mandate returns 5%, they want to beat that after costs. On the index side of the world, which is where, where I work, and Vanguard is a, a prominent indexer um, in the asset management business, <clears throat> is what we're trying to do is we're trying to match the benchmark or match the market that we're investing in as closely as possible. So um, what that involves in terms of uh, a mandate at a mandate level is us taking in or sending out cash flows that are coming in from clients or going out to clients and making sure that the remainder of the fund is invested as closely as possible in line with the benchmark itself. So maybe before I go into um, the, the, the specifics of the day-to-day, maybe I'll give you a chance to see if that to see if that actually makes any sense to anybody. Yeah, no, that was awesome. And this is the type of stuff that you're breaking down these complex topics, specifically in finance, that many people hear index funds and they're like, what does that mean? What What is... What's the difference between an active and a passive fund? So the fact that you're able to break that down not only shows that you clearly understand the difference between it all, but you're really breaking down the jargon that a lot a lot of people in finance use but don't understand. So I uh, really appreciate you breaking it down, and it's going to be really helpful for the listeners who don't necessarily understand the differences or maybe don't even know the jargon at all. So, yes, please proceed. I uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so, so like I said, the, the jargon is, is certainly out there, and it can be difficult to, to figure out what one position is versus another. But but that that's the, the very high level of, of kind of where I work and where I'm placed within the asset management industry. As far as a, a day-to-day basis, um, the ultimate goal for us is, like I said, is to have the performance of our funds match as closely as possible the performance of the benchmark. And And while that seems... Uh, to some relatively easy to do. Like, don't you just buy everything that's in the benchmark? You know, for example, if you had a very simple benchmark and your benchmark was uh, the auto industry, right, and you wanted to buy GM bonds and you wanted to buy Ford bonds, couldn't you just buy all those bonds in their proportionate weight in the marketplace and just sit on it and forget about it? Um, it's not quite that simple um, for a lot of reasons, particularly in the fixed income space, you have things like liquidity challenges where certain bonds aren't as easy to trade or trade in large size um, as certain securities might be in the equity markets. Um, You also have issues of uh, idiosyncratic risk of one underlying bond versus another one. Just because two bonds are issued by General Motors doesn't mean that they're both going to perform the same way in the same environment. They could have different maturities. They could have different coupons. They could have different uh, different risk characteristics attached to them. They could also even have different underlying covenants or, or different underlying terms associated with that debt. So what we're trying to do ultimately is we're trying to produce what I'd call a mosaic um, of the, the bond market benchmark that we're trying to replicate. And what I, what I mean by that is that if you take a broad bond benchmark, meaning a, a broad representation of all of the securities in the the universe, um, and let's just, let's just say we're using the U.S. bond market as an example, 
Um, there's thousands and thousands of bonds in the U.S. bond market. Um, for practical reasons, we can't invest in every single one in the exact weights that they exist in the marketplace. So what we're ultimately trying to do is we're trying to create a mosaic of that benchmark by investing in a mix of bonds from different issuers, different maturities, different sectors, different risk characteristics, so that we can as closely match that broader benchmark or that more detailed picture of those thousands and thousands of securities, but do that with a smaller number, just because of the, the simple inability to to buy every single bond of the benchmark. So to, to kind of wrap up how that fits into the course of an actual day, it, it basically the day revolves around monitoring what's happening in the markets and trading so that we match what's going on in the market. That can be new issues, um, so different uh, organizations, government, governments, corporations, et cetera, are issuing new debt every day. Um, so we're, tra- we're tracking that and paying attention to it, um, and we're making sure that we're part of those deals and we're participating in those by buying bonds. Um, we're monitoring cash flows that are coming into the funds and out of the funds so we can trade in and out to, to either raise or uh, spend cash as needed. Um, and there's a lot of detailed aspects that, that go on underneath that. But that's that's the primary part of the day, and I'd say is the core aspect of the job. Um, another aspect of the job for me is I'm, a, I'm also a people leader. And so there uh, becomes, a, obviously, a responsibility to manage others, to develop what we call our crew members here at Vanguard, our employees. Um, so I do things like meeting and sitting down with people on my team, um, I'm attending project meetings, thinking strategically about either what's happening in the markets or what the, the team and the company can do differently to better position ourselves. Um, so it's really those two things. It's, it's the technical side of, of trading and portfolio management, which is really monitoring risk and adjusting the funds as needed. Um, and then the people leadership, strategic leadership side, um, which is more of kind of a, a general management type of responsibility that I have as well. That's so cool. That's awesome that you get to experience both working with people and then also working with, I guess you could say, working with the numbers. So you get your day split up as to responsibilities for both clients, coworkers, and being in finance as long as you have. It's one of those, it's one of those industries where you either are in it for your, the entirety of your career or there are a lot of people that move out and go elsewhere, elsewhere either within finance. Sometimes, of course, people will switch completely different career paths. But it's been really interesting that you've been in finance for so long. And I guess I was wondering what has interested you most about it and kept you within the broader industry. Yeah, so it's it's a it's a good question, and I think that answers and the kind of the results are going to be different for everybody. Um, I would love to be able to sit here and say, you know, I've I've wanted to be uh, somebody, a finance professional since I was five years old, and I dreamed of that day that, that hopefully it would come. Um, I wasn't one of those people that knew what I wanted to do. Um, I remember, you know, taking a couple tests and doing a couple surveys and things throughout middle school and high school, and, and I honestly fell into business and finance um, accidentally. Um, it was... You know, engineering seemed like a lot of heavy maths and things that I didn't want to necessarily take on. 
um, some of the arts careers um, and 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 majors seemed a little bit too soft for kind of my level of interest in numbers and analytics. Um, and so business was more, I'd say, by default. Um, I you know I got a business administration and finance degree, um, basically because I couldn't figure else you know where else I wanted to be. Um, so that, that's that's the the honest reason of kind of how I started in finance. Well, we appreciate your honesty, and that, I feel like that's how it happens for so many people. And getting a general business education, I myself had the same type of degree, and, and it's it's definitely a great background into where to go next, whether that's within finance or elsewhere, because money is important in any job, industry, career path, and having that background is undoubtedly important. It's a great starting point. Yeah, and I, I think that's ultimately where it comes. It's, it's <clears throat> For me, it's been the intersection of, of both the, the, the career path in finance as well as the company. Um, and I, I think once you, as you start to get more experiences, as you start to understand the different options that are out there, you, you do realize where, where your personality tends to fit. And, and even though I've been in, in finance um, for for my entire career, I've, I've held a number of different positions. And and even though they've all been at the same company, and you know in the same industry, and, and technically in the same field of, an, of of investing or investment related roles, they've been dramatically different in terms of what's been asked of me in terms of skill sets. Um, so I, I almost think less now about industry. Um, and more about the specific skills that you're using. Um, we, we even see that when we're hiring for Vanguard. We, you know, there's a lot of fantastic people that are coming out of college or out of MBA programs um, to join us. And I think more historically, um, people have chosen Vanguard among a handful of asset management firms. Um, but we're actually seeing now that, that, that a lot of the people we're recruiting are, are having options elsewhere. Um, Outside of the finance industry, whether that's uh, Silicon Valley, or it's in consulting, or um, or if it's other places in in banking or or financial services, so I think students are starting to think more in that direction. I would I would encourage people to think along those lines. It's what what skills do I bring to the table to my industry um, and, or any industry, and, and where can those skills be put put to good use? Um, and and if it's if it's finance, great, but um, I, I think it's more important to know yourself and know what you're good at and what type of positions and roles that fits well in rather than you know, necessarily at the outset of a career picking up one industry and, and you know, holding yourself to, to looking for opportunities only in that one place. That's a great way of looking at it, giving yourself a wider breadth and a different viewpoint on how to progress in your career, whether that's in one industry or 20 different ones. So I, I like that. I think the listeners are going to find that extremely valuable, and that switch of a mindset can really change uh, an entire career. So that was uh, really interesting. Thank you for that. Sure. So you talked about Vanguard being just an, an incredible company, and it, it seems that you've been, there, you've, you've been there in your entire career, so you must have had incredible opportunities. Working for the largest asset manager – in the world, you've been able to work in different geographical geographic locations as well as functional uh, locations, uh, functional areas. So, I-, I was really wondering if you could give just a brief background, a brief description of the other roles you 
were a part of that you had the opportunity to undertake. Uh, and they don't have to be in-depth answers, sure. but being able to show and illustrate the different areas and the different functional areas you can do that you can be a part of rather, rather than that investment banking job, that equity research, jobs that people really just want over anything else, that there are so many other opportunities out there. So if you could do that, that would be awesome. Sure, yeah. No, I, I think also it's about creating your own path and not necessarily having a, a long-term plan, um, but, but at least having some type of direction around the things you want to get exposure to. Um, so for me, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend my career path. Um, it might make sense to some people and, and to others it might seem um, kind of all over the place, uh, but it's, it's worked for me so far. Um, so I, I started out of school in a leadership development program, which is essentially um, what, you, what you see more and more these days um, at certain companies, which is a chance to rotate through. Um, I rotated through six different departments at Vanguard over the course of about two years. Um, they were mostly finance and accounting related. So, so that was the first two years. Um, after that, I moved into a role in, in what's, what was then called our, our corporate financial services group um, within our finance and strategy division. Um, this was not an investment role per, per se. It was more around internal Vanguard business financial analysis. So evaluating new business opportunities, um, evaluating um, headcount and growth and budgets, um, and where we're we going to spend and prioritize spending in the future. Um, so I spent a, spent a few years doing that. Um, it was at that point that um, as I was progressing, I, I kind of felt a kind of a growing itch or a growing need to step even more over to the investment side. Um, so I, I just finished up um, the CFA program. Um, so I, I kind of had the chance to either stay in corporate finance and strategy or move over to investments um, internally. And so I decided to, to, to really try and make that push over to the investment side um, and did that through through kind of a combination of networking um, and, uh, and also support from my existing manager. Um, so moved from corporate finance and strategy into a derivatives trading role. Um, that was only for about three months. That was more kind of getting my getting my feet wet, getting a taste for for the investment side of the business. Really enjoyed that um, and was able to use that opportunity to get a, a full time role um, in our investment strategy group, which is basically um, writing white papers, doing research on topics like asset allocation or investment strategies or economics, um, portfolio construction, things like that. Um, that we would write about for the benefit of our teams internally, but also um, go out and talk about and publish and share research uh, with our clients and with potential clients. Um, I did that both in the in the U.S. and the U.K., um, which is a great experience getting to do a, a similar role over in the U.K. with a different client base, different office. Um, so that was that was fantastic. Um, and then recently, uh, about 18 months ago. Um, uh, return back to the U.S. to take up a, a fixed income portfolio management role. Um, and now that I think about it, I actually forgot one. Um, while I was in London, I was also uh, head of our risk management function um, after the time I spent in investment strategy. So, so that was a, that was about an 18 month or two year time frame that I did that. Um, and that was again focused on the risk management of our funds. So, finance and strategy, a little bit of derivatives trading. 
investment strategy and research, risk management, and now portfolio management. So that's the reason why I said I don't necessarily recommend that career path um, because I, I think sometimes it can be difficult um, to progress when you're moving around that much. Um, but I've been fortunate that I've, I've just happened to hit Vanguard in my career at a time when, when I'm interested in trying out new things um, and when uh, you know Vanguard more broadly is growing and has a need for um, kind of expanding teams and, and additional leadership. That's incredible. Wow. I mean, you've had all these different experiences and in all these different areas within finance, investments, research, risk management. That's absolutely incredible. That's got to really increase that breadth of knowledge. And it's, it's probably just I, maybe not the straightforward path that a lot of people are hoping for, but I, I feel like it rarely, rarely works out that way. It's getting these experiences in these different locations, again, both geographically and functionally, has been, I'm sure that's been an incredible experience, even though it hasn't been as straightforward as you may like it to. Yeah, it's 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 been a it's been a fun journey. I, I'm you know stressful at times and, and difficult at times, but but I, I've been been fortunate that that it, you know through some of the things that I've done um, and also the the positions that my my managers I've had fantastic managers over the years um, have have put me in a position to encourage me to to take new opportunities to feel uncomfortable. Um, one of my leaders uh, here at Vanguard has always said, um, if if you're uncomfortable, you're learning. Um, so uh, that's one of those things. It's like, you know, everybody wants to get so good at their job that they can come in and do it blindly, um, but you, you forget that that's the time when you're not really learning anything and you're just kind of stagnating in your career. So um, certainly you can do that by just taking on more responsibility in a similar role, um, but for me it's just, just so happened that it's meant jumping around a bit. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I've heard a similar quote, a little bit more dramatic, saying if you're not growing – for learning, you're dying. So <laughs> yeah. it's it's interesting. It it's a bit of a funny quote, and yes, a bit dramatic. But I agree completely. It's all about being uncomfortable and and growing to to advance in in life, really. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned starting your career in a leadership development program. I definitely want to get there and get a little more in depth on that. But first. You're you're rare in the sense that you have both an MBA and a CFA designation. I know you headed into more of an investment type roles as that piqued your interest more. I'd love to one of the, one of the questions that a lot of people ask in my networking calls when I spoke with you and many other successful individuals within finance as I was trying and still am trying to navigate my way through. One of the things is you talk about MBA versus CFA. So a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of people compare the two as it's one or the other. Sometimes you want to do both. Some people say, I have both and neither is worth it. So I'd love to hear your take on it because you have both. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting question that I, that I know comes up a lot. I, I research that question online, going to different message boards and different articles, trying to figure the same thing out for myself. Um, and the conclusion that I've kind of gotten to is that it, it depends on where you're headed in your career. Um, that's obviously kind of a, a pretty basic or straightforward thing to say. Obviously, if, if you know where you want to be specifically, you know, 10 or 20 years down the road, it's, it's, it's relatively straightforward to know what to try and do right now to, to attempt to get there. Um, but 
I think for different people, if you'd ask, and you know, for yourself included, it, it's how much do you know about where you want to be in ten or twenty years? Um, when I asked that question of myself, the answer was. I know I generally want to be in business and finance, and I know I like this investment thing and want that to be a part of my career long term. Um, and so for me, the, the the thing that I thought about was optionality, and, and that's what led me to do both. So I, I started with a CFA to get the deeper finance knowledge um, and to get kind of a not just depth but but a breadth of knowledge across a lot of different areas of finance. But I also wanted to pair it with with the MBA. Um, to get that business experience because I, I, I did envision myself getting into people leadership and getting into broader strategic leadership and general management at some point. So I think that's the case for both. It's optionality. Um, however, the two of them are both on their own, extremely time-consuming. Um, I, I did my MBA part-time. I know a lot of people go back full-time. Um, so if you're choosing between one or the other, I think it's going to depend on, again, where you're headed. Um, one of the things that I found really helpful when I was coming out of school was I Googled the different positions that I thought I might be interested, not six months from now, but 10 or 20 years from now. Like, you know, going on to Indeed.com or some other type of, of you know, LinkedIn to see different positions that are available reading job descriptions and saying, you know what, that I couldn't do that now, and I'm not qualified to do that now, but that sounds really, really cool, and I would love to do that someday, I think. And then going and looking what the requirements are for the job. Um, so you're almost reverse engineering, like, what what does it feel like I like right now? What, what am I projecting are the careers and the places I want to target in my career, and what are the what are the requirements for that role? And I think some jobs, if you're leaning more, again, towards the general management, consulting type side, the MBA is, is going to be the way to go. Um, but specifically in asset management, you're probably going to see CFA front and center. Um, maybe an MBA as well, but, but CFA is certainly going to, be, going to be probably top of the list. So I, I think that's where the differentiation comes is, is your direction. If you're, if you're looking for the ultimate broader general management and leadership, MBA is a no-brainer. Um, especially if you can go to a, to a top MBA at a, at a top school. Um, if you want to be in asset management and you know that, CFA is probably a no-brainer. Um, again, credentializes you, demonstrates that you spent a lot of time and effort dedicating yourself to, to learning and coming up the curve in the industry. Um, so I think, I think that's the way I would think about it, but, but making sure you do that in the context of your own goals and your own uh, projections in terms of where you want to be 10 or 20 years from now, um, as opposed to just going collecting designations or collecting degrees. Um, those those are awfully time-consuming and potentially stressful stressful things to do over a period of years to just kind of step into it without, uh, without really thinking through it. Interesting. So it's about optionality, long-term thinking on where you may want to go with your career, as well as just general interest. So it's a mixture of the three from your perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because um, I, I think, and I think a lot of articles acknowledge this, but but anytime uh, you know you have this binary question of kind of MBA versus CFA or, or you know you know anything that's that's framed in that way, it's always going to come down to the characteristics of the person. Um, so <clears throat> I think too often people try to look for degrees or designations to determine who they are. Um, rather than first 
thinking about who they are and then finding the designation or the degree that, that matches up with, with what they want to do and who they are currently. Awesome. Well, that's going to be very helpful. So it's all about knowing yourself and thinking ahead, really. Yeah, absolutely. Making a plan, um, but doing it in the context of, of your own specific needs and interests. Absolutely. So I definitely want to dive deeper into this leadership development program. Earlier you mentioned that a lot of students, including yourself, don't, don't really know what to, where to go, especially right out of school. So getting that general business degree is obviously very helpful, a great place to start a career if you have an interest in finance. So, and, and I have heard that those leadership development programs are that pretty much the next step after that. In, in the sense that you're able to experience so much in a short amount of time. And I'd, I'd love for you to talk about the pros and cons of doing this, this sort of program rather than diving headfirst into a quote-unquote typical job. Yeah, sure. So the, I think the list of cons is very short. Um, one, of the, one of the primary cons or the drawbacks is that um, space tends to be pretty limited in, in leadership development programs. Um, I, I got lucky with Vanguard. I, I happened to have a, an internship during my the summer after my junior year, and was able to use that to um, to get into one of the leadership de- development programs here. Um, but the, but the spaces do tend to be limited a, a across the industry and across different companies. So so that's a negative in terms of your odds of getting in there. And I, I think sometimes. Um, as, as much as tr- people try to improve their resumes and their GPAs and, and, and things like that, it, it, there's some, some aspect of luck that, that comes into it. Um, so, so I'd say that's, that's really the drawback. Um, I, I think everything else is, is positive, right? You get to try out different jobs um, while somebody's paying you to do that. that that's fantastic. Um, you, you get to experience the culture of a company, from a number of different perspectives, different departments, potentially even different divisions, um, which gives you great insight. Um, and it also, one <clears throat> probably underplayed um, benefit of a leadership development program um, that I think people forget about, but is, is potentially the largest benefit, is the, the network and the connections that you build. Um, so I mentioned it, that I, I, had, I, I got to spend two years going through six different departments um, the amount of people that you meet, the, the broader understanding that you get of of how different people and groups and committees um, work across the organization is, is tremendous. Um, and, and I think because of the place in the leadership development program, you're also getting a chance to meet with senior leadership probably more frequently than you would um, if you were in a in a position that that wasn't part of a leadership development program, so um, certainly you know not everybody um, can be in a leadership development program, and but there's there's also ways to create a similar experience on your own, um, right? You, just because you join a job out of, after graduation doesn't mean you have to stay in it for for eight years. Um, you, you can also potentially take the opportunity to to explore things over the first five years of your career. But I, I, I do think the the rotational program, getting those different experiences, building those networks, is is invaluable. For sure, that short list of cons is what I've heard from many, whether they've they've experienced it or watched from afar. So it's it's definitely one of those highly desired programs, and if they're highly desired, there's probably going to be less spots, so it's definitely something to experience if you can. 
Yeah, and and, and again, if, if somebody isn't a leadership development program, um, like I said before, there, there's ways to replicate some of those experiences um, by by just doing things in the role that you're currently in. You know, requesting to be on a project that crosses over from one division or one department to another, um, going to different events to try and network and meet people, and then asking someone to go to lunch or grab a cup of coffee, uh, um, chatting with them about their experiences in other places. So, so the, the leadership development um, experience can be obviously had directly in one of those programs, but I, I think people who are entering, entering the workforce or entering a new company can can also create their own similar experiences um, on, a, on a different type of scale uh, by proactively seeking those, those networking and those project opportunities out. Incredible. So it's about you can simulate it through networking. And one of the things that I have leveraged as much as possible is the power of the network and being able to learn so much and just as you referred to there, being able to talk with others and learning so much from them. Yeah, and I, to, to me, I, we, we have people in leadership development programs coming through through our team on a regular basis. Um, I've met people who have been very successful that have come into the company through other paths that, were, that weren't leadership development programs. Um, but I'd say the one thing that um, that starts to differentiate people over the course of time, let's say three years, five years within a company, is, is not just someone's technical abilities, um, because those are certainly extremely valuable, but also their, their knowledge of the organization, how to get things done, um, and, and the relationship that chips that they build over time. So it's, it's a very undervalued skill that I think people forget about. Um, they, they want to get a designation or they want to get a master's degree or they want to take to this next class. They want to develop an additional skill in coding or programming or languages. Um, but forgetting that, that relationships is, is going to be just as impactful, if not more impactful, to help them get them where they want to be. Awesome. Yeah, there, the knowledge of an organization and really intaking the culture, I don't think that'll ever get old. That's something that will always differentiate people. Definitely. I want to switch gears here a little bit and talk about technology and the impact on, on finance. So, Many people are talking about massive job reductions in industries, including finance, obviously, due to the introduction of more efficient AI, machine learning, and other technological capabilities that can really just beat humans in so many different aspects. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on technology's impending doom and possibly the overstated Scare that people are uh, talking about. Yeah, so I, I, the the topic itself and the concern itself, I, I think, is real, um, and I, I don't want to underplay that concern. Um, and while I'm no expert in, in the field, I, I do. It sounds like I, I agree with with you that, that the, the concerns are um, a bit overblown. Um, when you think about the actual time scale that a lot of these things would take to, to implement. So technology is certainly accelerating, and a lot of the things that we're using, if, if, I, if I use just examples here at Vanguard around, you know, trying to automate some of our trading capabilities or looking at optimization in our some of our funds, things like that um, are certainly 
changing the work that we do on a day-to-day basis. Um, but at the same time, I don't see any um, cliff on the horizon that's going to ultimately one day just change drastically and suddenly. I think more likely what you'll see is is a rotation of certain roles and certain people out of certain jobs that that are more prone to um, automation, um, but into other things that have been created as a result of the increased innovation and technology. Um, so while, while there's certainly many areas of finance that I think are ripe for continued automation, um, you know whether that's artificial intelligence or or, or other types of automation that, that could come through. Um, I think that's going to be um, slower than most people expect, or at least slower than what you, you tend to hear about, you know, kind of more broadly throughout the, the media. Um, and I think there's also not going to be a, a, a dramatic drop or an immediate drop in the amount of jobs in some of these areas. It'll just be using the people who are freed up to do some of those less, uh, to do some of those more mundane tasks. Um, to be able to do uh, more value-added responsibilities instead, um, to try and create value that way. Um, so it's a really change in the, in the way that people create value. Um, so I think that's where people need to kind of understand their specific role. Um, if, if you're in a job that's at risk of automation or you, you're in a job that's that's repetitive or if you're in a job that some of the, the technologies that are, that are coming out now um, could potentially alter, um, then you just kind of make sure you're you're continuing to learn and develop and grow new skills. Um, you know, years ago it was it was outsourcing. Um, now it's it's technology. Um, I think those are just kind of two examples of things that are changing the 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 job and the career landscape. But there's always going to be something. So I think that's where people just need to pay attention, keep their head up, um, and and continue to evolve and develop their skills to make sure that that their responsibilities. And, and their potential to, to add value continue to exist. Absolutely. So it's definitely about keeping your head above water, understanding where we are in the development of this new increased techn- technological capabilities. And and I like how you said understanding your role. Know where you fit, if your job is going to be affected, and if it is, how it, how is that going to change, and what can you to what can you do to innovate along with it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that comes with a general general approach of embracing the technology. Um, people, at, people at Vanguard who I've talked to, a number of people who are very successful have been the ones who are on the leading edge of technology. They're seeing what's out there. They're trying to bring new ideas in. They're trying to implement um, things that, that Vanguard hasn't done before, things that haven't been done in the industry previously. Um, and, and those people are, are creating opportunities for themselves and for others that didn't exist before. Um, and yes, that might ultimately result in some roles changing or or or, or um, decreasing in terms of the workload. Um, but the people who are who are encouraging themselves and others to get on board and keeping their skills up to date, like I said, um, are going to be the ones who are who are ready for those changes um, and who are. Who, on the on the on the leading edge of um, the new roles and responsibilities that exist because of them. For sure, for sure. And so I, I want to end on a bit of a different question. Um, we we had a personal conversation just us two when when I first 
reached yeah. out to you and when we when we first connected among the vast amazing information you gave me my one of my last questions was regarding advice for younger individuals and you talked about something kind of interesting two very interesting things but I'll, I'll break them down into two separate so first you talked about something your high one of your high school teachers told you i believe I believe it was your geography teacher yeah. and he said People get paid for things that are either hard or rare. Could you um, talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, the the message that he was trying to get across was that, um, and this is maybe you know in a more basic high school terms, um, you know that, that if if you think you're going to kind of skate through college, if you're going to skate through the career world and and ultimately be successful in, in whatever way that you define success, whether fulfilled fulfillment or salary or um, influence or whatever you know, whatever it is, um, you're fooling yourself if you think you can do that easily. Um, so, so the idea of doing something hard or rare, I think, comes back to the idea of supply and demand. Um, if you think about some of the most challenging, or at least in my mind, some people might disagree, but if you think about some of the most challenging majors that are out there, some of the, the most technical things that require a significant amount of time and effort to get up to speed on. Um, those tend to align with some of the jobs um, that pay the most coming out of school. Um, now, I, I don't want to say that's um, a hard and fast rule, because certainly my wife was uh, a teacher for for ten years, and teachers uh, is, teaching is an extremely hard profession, um, and that doesn't always result in financial rewards. Um, so, so there's certainly exceptions to the rule, but the idea of supply and demand still exists. Right. If, if there are certain things that you're doing, if we if we put it in an asset management or a finance context, um, if there's certain things that you can do that others can't, or if there's things that you've done that are challenging um, over the years, whether that's designations, degrees, training, um, specific skills that you've built that are either very difficult to obtain or are rare. Um, those tend to command a higher amount of compensation or are more desirable in the industry. Um, and, and so that's really kind of the, the underlying theme there is that in a world of supply and demand, chances are that in order to be successful in a career, um, you're going to have to do something that, that's difficult or you're going to have to do something that's rare. That um, doesn't always have to be technical skills. Um, there's some people that are tremendous relationship builders, Right. If you think about a fantastic salesperson, um, you know they, they might have tremendous technical knowledge as well. But but if they can build relationships and connect with people more effectively than others, and they spend time honing and developing those skills, um, they're ultimately going to be more successful. And uh, very very few of us you might you might consider a, a couple professions like maybe maybe modeling for example, right? Where you you kind of wake up and and your genetics have just provided an opportunity for you. But I think in, in the vast majority of circumstances, what you're looking at is the need to spend a lot of time and effort continuing to build out certain skills to differentiate yourself from others. Amazing. So, people, it's about supply and demand. Brush up on your economics if you don't understand. you got to use it in a different capacity here, though. Very <laughs> awesome. That's great. And the other really interesting thing I remember you saying was, he said, I've always tried to think of myself as a small business. And I thought this was extremely interesting. Could, could you harp on that a bit? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I, 
think it kind of hinted at a couple things that are they're related earlier around around thinking ahead and, and planning out and knowing yourself. Um, any small business owner, if they're going to be successful, they need to have a strategy. Um, they need to know how they either are or are going to be different from their competition. Um, they need to know what they bring to the table that is different from the people that they're competing against. Um, and they need to make sure that their small business is constantly changing and growing so that they're not left behind. Right? And, and not that I think of my, my fellow employees as, as competition because especially here at Vanguard, there's a very collaborative nature and one of the, the most important ways of getting ahead is, is working well with other people. Um, but you can still take that mindset into the idea of where, where do I fit in this company as a person? Um, what am I good at? What do I have potential to get even better at? And then where are the areas where I'm not that good and I actually don't think I can compete with others or I'm not as successful or couldn't probably be successful even if I put a bunch of time in um, as other people? And let me play off of my strengths. Um, so it's this idea of instead of trying to take an area where, where, I'm, where I'm weak um, and try to make that a strength, I want to make sure my weaknesses aren't too weak, um, but I, I want to more so play to my strengths. And and that can be, um, when you think about yourself as a small business, that can be long-term planning, right? Just as a business owner would sit down and think, like, here's what I need to accomplish in the next year, here's what I need to accomplish in the next three to five years, and here's the goals I'm going to set for myself over the next ten years. Um, I think the same things are just as important for people. Um, people seem to, to, to forget um, about differentiation when it comes to their their own personal experience. Um, even if they're very well-schooled on differentiation when it comes to a, a corporate strategy perspective. Um, all of us are our own small businesses, um, and I, I think to the extent that you can differentiate yourself over time, understand your place in the market and the things that make you valuable, um, the better off you're going to be. Incredible. That's awesome advice. Brian, I really appreciate the time. This has been amazing. So much valuable content for our listeners and myself. If if anyone wants to reach out to you, connect, follow you, where is the best place to reach you at? Yeah, I'd, I'd say probably on LinkedIn. Um, so I have a, a profile there. Um, feel free to connect. Um, you know, let me let let me know that you you heard the podcast, and and happy to happy to connect on there. Incredible. Awesome. Brian, thank you so much. Great. Thank you very much, Ben. Take care. You as well. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to another episode. And make sure to share this with your friends. If you haven't done it yet, give us a follow on Spotify and Instagram at Aspire underscore Inquire to take on this journey with us. That being said, stay tuned to next Thursday and do not be disappointed. Peace.